Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. My name is Steve Wopolinik. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and one of the founders of the Promethean Project. Our guests are people who have broke the chains of their limitations and found the strength of their potential. We offer their stories as inspiration and as guidance to help others navigate their quest to find their flame. Welcome to episode 29. As always, your host, Steve Opolinik. Super glad that you're tuning in today. Today, our guest is amazing. His name is Rolando Garcia III. I had so much fun talking to him about a bunch of different things. Uh, we span from his background, what he's learned through life, but then also talk about his martial arts and his approach to things like kettlebell but then also his approach to regulating the nervous system, regulating his emotions, and and really focusing on problem solving. It was a lot of fun to talk to him, and there's so much more information I want to glean from his experience and and what he does. So look for him in a future episode. I think he's going to be back, and we didn't get to talk about some of his martial arts uh, that he does. I really want to pick his brain in the future about Jeet Kune Do. We might just have a whole episode about his martial arts specifically. So uh, stay tuned. But uh, a little bit about him. He's a leader in the fitness industry and has served as both coach and mentor to some of the top fitness teams and most recognized brands in the world. His certifications include RKC Level 2 and has a master's in service and hospitality from Cornell University. He's a full instructor in Jeet Kune Do and Filipino martial arts and a coach at uh, Boxe Frances Savat. Uh, through his father, he inherited the Dizon system of Filipino martial arts. He is also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu purple belt. And lastly, he is an established author of Intrinsic Excellence that was published by Dragon Door and has an awesome forward by uh, one of the main men in Kettlebells now, Dan John. So I can't really hype this episode up more than I have already because I, I really, really enjoyed it. So I hope you guys do too. There's some really good gems of knowledge um, for martial arts, personal training, physical training, but but then also just for life itself. So please enjoy and it's coming your way now. In a world where humanity's potential is imprisoned and locked away, our only hope is to break the chains and find our flame. Um, so now I can just kind of coast the rest of the day. <laughs> how many how many workouts do you usually get in? Well, right now, since we are stay at home, I try to get in about two to three a day on a five day a week schedule. And, oh. and uh, the, the first one in the morning is, um, at least in this cycle, is a little power endurance. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is very conventional, uh, very strength based. And then the third one, the very last one, because after all of those challenges, you have neuromuscular and metabolic and then a musculoskeletal. Now it's the skill acquisition. And that's where the Filipino um, weapons work comes in, the footwork, the Japanese uh, swordsmanship, which is, uh, is actually more challenging than it looks. I don't know how they do it, but they look so zen. Right. YouTube videos are so relaxed. But when I'm doing it, it's like, oh, God, my delts are burning. <laughs> I don't know how they do that. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of crazy. My brother, um, he does Bagua, and he was in Taiwan for a while studying Bagua, six, seven years, I think. And there's a Bagua sword style and, and different sword styles. And there was one where the sword is like this monster of a sword. Mm. And it, like I got to play around with it in the States. And it was just whole whole arm just shaking holding <laughs> holding it up it's like taking a weed whacker and like oh let me just hold it up and swing it around and practice the form the overhead head work in the japanese style that i'm using also if you're breathing your posture everything goes out the window 
Uh, and whatever you can press with the kettlebell, this is a very different uh, animal altogether. So yeah, that's my, that's my six or seven o'clock one, which is supposed to wind me down, but requires a lot of mental focus. Nice. Well, awesome, man. I'm, I'm glad we're starting the podcast talking, <laughs> talking about the stuff we wanted to yeah. talk about anyway. So, um, yeah, so thank you for being on. Rolando Garcia III is our guest today. Thank Welcome. you. Thank and you for having me. And I think uh, we connected on Facebook, I believe. That's how I, I followed your, your progress and just your daily workouts and your philosophies on life and what's going on in New York during this time and all of that stuff. And I love seeing your posts um, about martial arts, about exercising, but also about the government and political minded um, philosophies on compassion and kindness and things of that nature too. So uh, when I outreached, I was really glad you accepted because I felt like it'd be a really good conversation to have you on. Yes. Thank you. And I look forward to having this conversation with you. So I know a little bit about you, but why don't you feel me and a, a little bit on who you are, what you do, what your philosophies and passions are, and then we can go from there. Okay, good. Um, well, first of all, uh, I guess, uh, having come from the Philippines, uh, my family and I emigrated from the Philippines back in the 80s, and I came here uh, pretty much as a young boy. And the Philippines is a, uh, is a very interesting culture in that it's, it's a very martial culture, and I can get into that a little bit. And then I uh, grew up in Hawaii, and, uh, and I actually uh, went to um, Obama's uh, school, his alma mater. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I can, when he speaks about it a little bit, I, I can kind of identify with some of his own experiences there. And then I came to New York, uh, but throughout that whole process, uh, I've um, been a martial artist pretty much my whole life, got into fitness because... As a martial artist, especially when you're Asian, you know, the average uh, Asian male at the time in the 90s when I saw it was like 5'6", 135. Right. And so on the Filipino side of the family, I'm like 5'9", 130. And they're like, you're fine. But when you're in the United States, it's a different animal because yeah, it's a different that, beast for sure. A very different beast, uh, especially going to high school and the sports that you're exposed to on the American side, you have football, baseball, basketball, and the, the average American at the time was like 5'9", 160. This is the 1990s. Right, yeah. 5'9", 160. So a big part of my own personal growth in the martial arts, but also in fitness, is having to reconcile, uh, one, this type of cultural gene pool that I come from, and the cultural expectations there, but also the reality of where I'm living. You know, I'd come home to my parents, mom, dad, they're, they're bigger than me, right? They're more right. athletic than me. Their definition of athleticism is very, very different. So as I progressed as a martial artist, I started to get into traditional uh, weightlifting. You know, the kind of stuff that, because you're, you're you're young, you're you're a teenager, you're in the United States. You right. you kind of want to not just fit in, but you kind of want to be able to express yourself. And one of the main ways uh, in the United States that uh, individuals express themselves is through some sort of athleticism. Mm -hmm. And this is the '90s. This is the peak of Stallone, the peak of Schwarzenegger. You know, yeah. the way you the way you uh, um, felt comfortable in your own skin was that your bicep was the size of your thigh and you know, you, you, um, you kind of you know, fist pumped a lot of times and winning at all costs. And so I went that route uh, for a while. So here I was, 5'9", 135. One part of me culturally was like, I should be okay. But the other part of me was that it's not going to work. So I proceeded uh, in martial arts, but also in resistance training, all types of training. And you and I know, especially in this day and age of misinformation, right? In social media, people tend to be very uh, reactive to misinformation. But if you've been in the martial arts a long time, especially in fitness in a long time, welcome to my world. We are covered in misinformation. <laughs> right. We're covered in it. 99% of it is misinformation. So having to wade through the misinformation of what was in the 90s, you know, a uh, drink a 2,000 calorie shake, 
which was all sugar. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and, Bunch of filler and sugar. Right. A lot of filler that was in there. And the zone diet, right? Zone diet. Right. Carbs are bad. Fruit is bad. So having to go through that. And then this was in the late 90s also where, where well, if you want to get big, you want to lift. Because if you do martial arts, that's actually cardio. Right. Now you fast forward. Now you have MMA. You have UFC. And these guys are very athletic. They're very big. But they haven't lost any of their skill. And so I went through all of those iterations of not just in both subjects of study, but through my own development. And I had to overcome a lot of my own biases, both cultural and inherited, but also my own sense of insecurities. And through trial and error, through self-study and self-inquiry, and also being humble enough to reach out to professionals, I was able to arrive to a lot of my own conclusions, data-based, a lot of it was data-based, so that now... I naturally, I'm stronger. I have a Jeet Kune Do instructor, Filipino martial arts instructor, um, one through my instructor, Armando Basulto, but also my dad, who was a student of Filicissimo Dizon. But now I walk around naturally at uh, 5'9", 218 pounds, and very athletic, very strong at 47 years old. So, And not only that, my entire career is in fitness. I started as a personal trainer, then went into management, um, uh, over a decade's uh, experience of management, an author uh, in how to succeed in personal training and intrinsic excellence. And um, yeah, and now I'm uh, uh, being able to thrive and try to help during this very difficult time. It's kind of um, a personal uh, mission of mine to be able to reach out to people uh, and to your audience. And hopefully I can be of service and assistance. That's amazing, man. There's, there's so much of that I want to get into. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. I, had, I found myself stopping from interrupting just so we can come back and kind of talk about it. But um, it's very similar to not exactly the same, but I, I grew up um, family of wrestlers. Uh, my uncle Steve was a Marine. My great uncle Steve, who I was named after, was a Marine. He was a wrestler. My grandpa was a wrestler in the Navy during World War II. Um, I don't think my dad really dabbled with it, but I started wrestling. I think I was in fifth grade when I started. And again, in the nineties, so much misinformation about, you know, what you need to do to put on weight or take off weight for wrestling and, and you yeah. know, what the right way to train is. And what I found towards the end of my wrestling career in high school was really, I really enjoyed the catch wrestling approaches to to training and fitness a lot more than just the standard of hey let's go to the weight room and and do whatever so that we can look really tough um because my biggest thing was i was overweight it's almost the opposite of what you were doing i was trying to take off weight while you were trying to gain mass mm-hmm. and um i was just overpowered but the first couple of years in high school because i was just overweight and then the last two years is when i saw the turnaround where i kind of evened out Oh, good. And then I was like at a weight class that I felt, um, oh, I have the skill set, but I was just overpowered before. Mm. And so I, I, my specialty, I, I guess if you want to call it high school wrestling career, was um, reversals. That was everything I was about, using the leverage, kind of taking, taking them by surprise and kind of flipping them around and then pinning them. And so that's, I think I was undefeated my senior year, but I, I only wrestled like 15 times. I wasn't really... Wow. Super entrenched that year because, you know, I got ringworm from, from the mat. So I was, I was out for half the session. Um, but I felt like that's when I was getting into catch wrestling. And my brother introduced me to a Matt Fury book. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Combat conditioning or something like yeah, 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 that was it. That was excellent. And that's when I kind of came into my own training regime instead of doing, oh, I want to look like Schwarzenegger carrying a tree in commando. Um, right. <laughs> it was like, oh, this is functional training. I really yeah. enjoy this. And then, you know, years later, my brother brought a kettlebell home from Taiwan, and that was my introduction to kettlebells. So, I really, really, and actually, after listening to you and Master Phil, um, your interview with him, I I took my kettlebells out, and I was like, you know what, this is the perfect thing to do right now. And so, I've yeah. been really training that. I think the last two weeks really getting back into that training cycle. So it's almost like kismet to have you on so we can talk about these things. I love, I, I, I'll tell you now, I think the, the kettlebell was absolutely designed for these types of times when 
you're you're at home. You're you're in Siberia. There's nothing else to do. You go out <laughs> there. Winter. You're up against a Siberian bear. You're up against the weather. You're up against the Cossacks. You're up against a lot of things. So your your only real option is you and the kettlebell. And I think I remember um, Pavel writing at one time that uh, the kettlebell uh, was just a part of Russia and Soviet life that you could find it in any apartment. You could find it as a doorstopper, really. Right. Uh, but I I'm very thankful that um, he brought that over into the United States and maybe about 10, 12 years ago, I got it in my head, uh, that I'm going to need these at some point. I'm really going to, and, and I already worked in a commercial gym brand and they had their full set of everything, barbells, kettlebells, you name it, they had it. Uh, but something told me I'm, I'm going to need this. You'll never know. So it's a, it's a heck of an investment during this time. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and it, it reminds me of that old school strength, like you're talking about in Russia. But I remember talking to my grandpa because our connection was through my namesake, his older brother who passed mm. away in world war two. So there was this really cool connection there, but he, he came to every one of my home wrestling matches. And so we had a, a connection to that. And he used to tell me stories about when they were growing up, um, you know, his brother, Steve would pick up full casks that they had on the farm one handed and just kind of put them on shelves and railroad yeah. tides and just kind of moving them around. And that, you know, in basic training, my grandpa like picked up, I don't know, a hundred pounds and one handed and kind of pressed it over his head. And so it's it brings back all these memories of that connection. So our first kettlebell, the one that my brother brought back from Taiwan, I think it was a, a 20 uh, kilogram. Mm. Uh, we named it George after my, my grandfather and has a bulldog on it. And his favorite dog was a bulldog. So it was just, again, Kismet, like, oh, yeah, let, let's go in with this. Let's, let's use this and, and kind of see where we get from it. So, Yeah. How long, did you, how long have you had George? Oh, man. A long time. Um, it's, it, you know, it passed between me and my brother a lot. So when my, my brother left it here when he came back from Taiwan to visit and then went back to Taiwan for five or six years. Oh. Um, and then so I, I had it. And then we were out in Boston for a little bit. Um, we're in Western Massachusetts now. Um, so a lot more country than, <laughs> than the cities, but um, I didn't have it out there and he had it back here. So it's just kind of had a home at my parents' house. And, you know, now it's, uh, I have it now and we have a bunch of other sets of kettlebells as well to- Oh, to that's excellent. On, so. Isn't that's it isn't it uh, not to interrupt you, but I thought it's, it's fascinating your background in wrestling and your love of catch wrestling. I love catch wrestling also, you know, Carl Gotch, um, you know, the true functional training. And me, the reason why I got into kettlebells was because of jiu-jitsu. Uh, I, uh, somebody who's been in Brazilian jiu-jitsu since 1999. So we're going on 20, 21 years now. It's a very different thing to try a barbell routine or a dumbbell routine or your current mainstream workout you know uh this celebrity bulked up for this thing and you could you could look like a marvel hero too if you follow this but then you get on the mats and some 130 pound purple belt is like twisting <laughs> you around so all of that goes out the window and the beauty of the kettlebell and i got into it because of that connection to that old school strength uh so many wrestlers in the past uh, were just so intimately connected with the kettlebell and they did a lot of things with it. You know, there was the juggling aspect of it for sure. Um, and I know right now, I believe the Ribeiro brothers, both Saulo and Zande, I think Zande right now on his Instagram shows him like juggling a 16 kilo. And, and, and it's that kind of old school wrestling strength, you know, right. that the kettlebell can give you. It's, it's, it's an amazing tool. I love it too i think we could probably talk about kettlebells this whole interview but um i think i think it's cool because of of that ability but also that connection to just the lines of fascia in your body and really strengthening those lines and that connection to you know it's not just oh let me let me isolate a muscle group and have it just be this overhead press but that goes into the body it sinks into your joints you you kind of create that line which yeah. again is very martial arts based yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, right. my brother talks a lot about Fajing and what he does, and, and that's this internal rotation 
to kind of like, I don't know exactly how it compares because I'm not a practitioner of Bagua, but similar to like the one inch punch, right? And that, yes. that Bruce Lee uh, made famous. And I do want to talk about Jeet Kune Do because I've never talked to anyone who's a <laughs> practitioner in it. So I want to pick your brain out what that is. I'd love um, it. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's, it, you know, it's pretty awesome to take something so simple, which is this weight and do a bunch of different functional exercises. And at the end of the day, your cardio is going crazy and improves your cardio, improves your lung function, improves your mood, improves your heartbeat, improves your, you know, heart rate variability, right? Which is all good for mental health, which is all good for physical, behavioral, emotional, all that stuff. And mm -hmm. just kind of this one encompassing thing. I went mm -hmm. on a run today after I haven't been running for, you know, a little while. After the two weeks of kettlebell training, I went on a run today. I felt like super strong. Yes. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> like, okay, like this is connected to, to other, other things. Although you can't see the direct correlation, it, it just made my run so much easier. My breathing yes. was more in sync. You know, it was really great. That's uh, the, the what the heck effect. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> You're living awesome. proof of it. So, um, so I want to talk a little bit about your journey. You, you've mentioned some of the highlights, but uh, you've also mentioned the cultural shifts, like the dual nature of uh, American um, exercise and your own cultural aspect of, you know, being from the Philippines and even growing up in Hawaii. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's a, a huge cultural shift in that aspect as well. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a, a little bit more about what, what that conflict that you saw arise a lot more besides just like height and weight, but it's, uh, it's interesting because, um, I've had a, a chance to really reflect on it, uh, especially the past couple of years, because if you think about it, if you take a look at the, the Philippine culture, you look at the Hawaiian culture and then coming over into uh, New York if we look specifically at uh, Philippine and Hawaiian culture specifically, those are warring cultures. Uh, the Philippines had blade, had a blade uh, culture. There were warriors within it. Mm. 7,000 island uh, nation archipelago and almost just as many languages and just as many cultures. And each one had a way of fighting with each other and they had their own fighting style. And being introduced to that and then coming to Hawaii. And when you go to Hawaii, it's kind of, as somebody who lived there and grew up there, it, I think that for tourists, it's something that um, it's sold as a paradise and it can be, it can be, but because it's so much of a cultural melting pot, yeah, it has its own level of conflict there also. Uh, the Hawaiian culture has its own warring culture and something that uh, they take a lot of pride in as well and as they should. Uh, but there was a lot of conflict there also. And then, of course, by the time I'm coming to uh, New York, the United States, I'll share this with you. Before my family, my, my dad has been teaching me martial arts since I was uh, six years old and I'm 47 years uh, old now. And the reason why he started teaching me martial arts at six years old, as you know, as a six year as a kid, you're getting into fights. But fights in the Philippines are a little different. They're real fights. You know, <laughs> it's like it's a bang, you're exchanging all types of things, right? right? And then you you come to Hawaii and uh, everyone's bigger than you. Everyone's just bigger than you. And you're getting you're 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 eating it, they're eating it, bang, 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 bang. So the there are a lot of things that are going through your head. Um one of them is that you, you really can't, part of my growth was as a martial artist, and you hear this a lot, you will have an enemy. You will have an opponent, whether it's a person or a group of people, you're the oppressor or you're the one being oppressed, or the enemy could be a goal, right? You're trying to overcome a bench press, you're kind of stuck there, right? Or a squat, right? Or maybe in your professional growth. The important thing I learned is that one, you cannot hate your enemy. Of course, of course, you know, we all know that. We all know what that can do to you personally. All right, so if I can't hate my enemy, what can I do? The important thing you can do as a martial artist is to study your enemy. Mm -hmm. Study them. And nothing brings that home more than 
when I was exposed to jujitsu. And my dad, who was um, judo black belt, when he first taught me judo, he actually first taught me newaza, the ground format of it. Man, when he would pin me, I'm like, Ugh, struggling. Oh, my God, you're breathing. And then at one point, I started biting him. He said, hey, that's not good. Um, maybe in a street fight, right. but don't not, get mad. Not for training. Don't, yeah. don't rely on that. Yeah, don't, you have to rely on your training. Study the position. Where am I putting my weight? Where are you breathing? How are you breathing? And uh, my younger brother, who um, he was learning at the same time as me, but had a very different temperament, he would get very angry very quickly, very angry very quickly, and he would get frustrated. So I learned not to get angry. I learned not to hate, and I learned to study it. And the, the critical part of this is how can you study a position when you are in a difficult situation? That's tough. And for example, uh, Hickson Gracie, who's like one of the greatest jiu-jitsu players of all time, said that the first role of once you're in a bad position, number one, are you safe? Number two, can you breathe, right? Because then you can fight, meaning you can study the position. Right. So when I was in the Philippines, then grew up in Hawaii, and came to New York, and even in this very big situation that we are in right now, I was having this conversation with a colleague of mine, also a martial artist, and I, I said, so what position are we in, do you think? He said, well, the pandemic has us in side mount. Yeah, yeah I think so. I think <laughs> they, <laughs> they have side mount. So what you don't want to do in side mount is to react. Don't react. Don't start pinching the guy or start biting him, you know, because that's a good way to lose your teeth. Right. Breathe, stay safe, and study the opponent. And something that we can pass on also to people who are listening to us during this time is during this pandemic, if you're being side mounted, you're basically in a defensive position, study it. But can you study it without reacting? Can you study it without going, uh, I don't like that. I'm going to post other things that have nothing to do with anything, right? Because if you cannot do that, if you cannot study an opponent, you cannot fight the opponent and that's when the opponent just there has side mount on you just pinning you now they're making you work now you're the one getting tired Jean-Jacques Machado said your job as um, a jiu-jitsu practitioner is to make your opponent's life a living hell but your job is to make them work not you so uh, in this pandemic if all you do is go on social media post all types of silly things get affected, uh, your, your heart rate goes through the roof, you're eating the wrong things, this virus is working you because right. you're, it's, it's making you forget all the things that you are. And that's not, what, that's not what we want. Study the opponent, stay safe, and from there, start to apply what you did, which is the reversal. Right. To use the leverage. I think that's it's so pertinent to hear and it, it's simple in the way that it's a concept that you, you can kind of internalize and you can think about it and, and how it makes sense. It's a lot more hard to put in practice when you react so much. And I think doing martial arts or even wrestling, you know, like when you were talking about being inside mountain and kind of being pinned and using that time to recuperate and, and really have the other person waste their energy. That was my move too. Yeah. You know, like, I'd lose. I I wouldn't hardly ever win by points. I'd win by pins because I would I'd be perfectly okay without being pinned just to kind of post up and rest. And then they would get tired and then the reversal would come and then I would turn it around and they'd be done. And it is something right. It, it's a control thing as well. If you're in distress or if you don't have the, the ability to tolerate that feeling of distress or that feeling of where am I at right now? And you avoid or you um, misplace it, like you're saying, posting things or going after people, being a troll on Facebook or social media, right? To get some kind of control. That's really a fake control of the situation. It is. It is. It's like, um, you know, it's like the, the, the guy, and, and for, for our listeners who may not be familiar with jujitsu, side mount is when you're in a defensive position, you're on your back, and then your opponent, or in this in, in jiu-jitsu, we say your friend, your friend is on top of you, 
they put their chest right and they put their weight right on top of you. Not a very comfortable position, especially if you're up against uh, champion guys, right? right? And the the thing about it is, can you can you breathe there? Can you be safe there? But more importantly, uh, this is what you don't want. You don't want to react. You don't want to be that guy who you're inside mountain. What do you do? You want to have fake control. What's fake control? You hug the guy. Right? Right, you hug right, the guy. Exactly. And you're breathing hard. Ah, ah. And then you're you're, you're being all like a, a like a big you know, bear about, uh, uh. and the whole time, the guy's on top of you. He knows the skill, right? He knows the art. So he should, okay, you want to hug me? Go ahead, hug me. I don't care. I'm, I'm applying pressure onto you. And now the really good guys, they, they, um, I believe a boa constrictor does the exact same thing. They count your breaths. So you, and then they start to measure it so that um, every time you inhale, the person on top just applies just a little bit more pressure right. and a little more pressure. So then now your breathing space becomes less. So you're now going <laughs> and your inhales are getting shorter. You don't even know why, but the whole time since you're hugging the guy, you think you're in control. You're not, you're actually not. And mm-hmm. you know, to, to the point with, uh, with what people are doing right now with themselves, don't go for the fake control. Understand the position that you're in and then study the position, study the opponent and then play that position. Exactly. And, it, and the cool thing that you're talking about too is applying that pressure. You're shortening the breath cycle, right? Which is setting the nervous system, shooting sky high, yes. the sympathetic, right? Fight or flight. Emotionally, you're going to make a mistake. You're going to oh, react. Yes. You're going to try to do it. So it's a brilliant tactic because without having to use too much exertion of your own own control, just the pressure and, and the maneuvering of, of everything as well. Yes, yes. And I like to liken this to having children sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's very it's very much uh, you know, they want to engage in these power struggles. And and being a mental health counselor, I see it a lot with families and and some of my clients. It's all control or fake control and if we feed into it as parents or even feed into that as kids, because sometimes it comes from parents, it goes nowhere. Neither one of you, it's that fake control manifesting. It's just cyclical and you never make any headway because if you're coming at me and you're not in a place of calmness and connection, I'm not going to listen to you because I feel like I'm being attacked. And so it's really finding, okay, maybe my control is not saying F you mom, I'm going to go play Xbox. But maybe my control is, okay, I can't go play Xbox today. Tomorrow I can. How do I cope with this and move on so it doesn't become I lose Xbox for a month? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's funny you, you, um, you mentioned that because, uh, you know, I, my, my family, we, we had a lot of dogs at home. Uh, in the Philippines, we had like German Shepherds. We were breeders, all that other stuff. And there was something my dad used to say to me. He's like, they're kind of like kids. They're kind of like kids. And he, he would say that if you, you have to give just enough uh, freedom so that they're happy, but just enough control so that now all of a sudden they don't take control, right? And the conversation went a little further. Everybody's looking for control, right? right. Everybody's looking. But what is the purpose of control? You're looking for control because somehow this internal reality that you're experiencing you want to have what um, I believe it was T.S. Eliot. He did, a, he did an examination of Hamlet, an analysis of Hamlet. And he said, you're looking for what's called an objective correlative, meaning I'm feeling something. Something out here in this environment, in this universe is causing me to feel this way. So what we try to do as human beings, whether we're five years old or 55 years old, is in order to have a coping mechanism for this internal experience to justify it. We try to express a form of control on something outside of us. When in fact it has nothing to do with what's outside of us. And that's where the Zen Buddhists come in. They said, look, I'm going to remove you from the city. We're going to go to a mountain. And I promise you in this very idyllic place, you're going to have a 10 times the whirlwind that you had When you were in the city, because none of this has anything to do with the outside world. It's you. It's something is happening in you. So you got to observe it. You got to study it. 
Because if you make it an enemy that you try to control, you're going to do the same thing to yourself and you'll never win that way. Yeah. I mean, you have such a way with words uh, to express these, these concepts that I, you know, in my head, that's kind of what's going on. I don't know if I could articulate it exactly, <laughs> exactly how you do. We look for regulation of self, right? Outside of ourself or, or to blame people or blame things or, oh, if I just had this or if I had this. When in reality, it's about, no, you're just dysregulated physically or emotionally or spiritually. You have to do that work. You have to study what it is that's causing that reaction for yeah. you. And manipulate, not manipulate it in a sense of a bad way, but kind of work with it until you can regulate either your physical response or your nervous system or your heartbeat or your, your breathing. So then it can kind of affect these other parts of your brain and your emotions and your behaviors because they're all interconnected, right? And so if you can regulate one, you can regulate everything. Yeah, uh, there's, um, there's an exercise in Sistema. It's a very interesting uh, exercise. And uh, I had it done to me. And then every now and then I'll pick like a, a friend of mine. I'll say, dude, you know, check out what happens to your biochemistry if you just change the way you breathe, right? And I did this a couple of times. I don't do it all the time because um, they, they get upset, but for the wrong reasons. So I tell them, look, all right, we're going to, here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm, I want you to deep inhale, long exhale, deep inhale, long exhale. And I'm going to smack you so hard with my palm on your chest, right? But when I hit you, I want you to exhale, right? So I do this to a couple of my friends. And these are during my personal training days. And I was surrounded by like really big monsters, guys. So I could do this to them all day, right? Okay, relax, relax, exhale, exhale, and exhale. Pow! And I nailed them. The whole gym would go, Rolando, what are you doing now? You're trying to kill my trainers. What are you doing? Hey, I'm trying to do, you know, something, an experiment on biochemistry and, you know, reactivity, all those other things. No one listens to that. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> I smacked the guy. This is the loudest smack. You could hear it in the entire, they thought a fight was going to break out, but he exhaled. So I asked him, how do you feel? No, I'm good. I'm good. Now I want you to do something very different. Inhale 20 times and grit your teeth and fire up your pecs, right? I just went, so you just go, right? So you're, you're right. So you know where this is going, right? Oh, SA yeah, yeah. is going crazy. You're getting this adrenal dump, right? And this is what I did to him. I took my fingers, not the palm, my fingers on his chest and 50%, I just went, bing. It was almost like, like that. Yeah. Very light. Like golf clapping him. Just like a kind of golf clap. And he was like, ah, he, he screamed, oh, what are you doing? What did you do? And he lifted his shirt and there was this welt. So there was a welt that started to grow right. on his skin. And he, what did you do? And then he thought I did like, you know, some sort of a Shaolin death touch. <laughs> and, you know, he thought I was like trying to kill him or something. Ripping out his throat <laughs> with tight fingers. Yeah, he, he thought that I was some Kung Fu master. No, I'm not a Kung Fu master. I just put you in this kind of um, werewolf biochemistry. Because if you breathe a certain way and you grit your teeth and there are nerve endings in your teeth, mm -hmm. then then connect into all these other myofascial lines, which make you put you in a fight flight response. So now all of the neurons in your body is thinking whatever comes our way is the enemy. Exactly. Right? And his body responded that way. The point being that what we often view as a threat. And if you're, you're a martial artist about this whole thing, the first thing you got to ask yourself is what kind of state am I in that for some strange reason, my threat response to this is the way it is. Tom Myers, I had a very great, and Tom Myers is, you know, the Fantastic. Oh yeah. anatomy yeah. trains. Um, I had a very, I had about a good three hour conversation with him and we talked a little bit about parasympathetic sympathetic tone. Right. There are three layers to sympathetic tone. Yeah, the vagal tones. So like the the split of the parasympathetic, right? Ventral yes. vagal and, and dorsal vagal. Yes. Yeah. He said, and then the the three of them, it was very interesting. He said the first the first one is actually um 
it engages. So when, when you get your first adrenal response, normal person, you go up to them and you say, hey, do you, do you want to grab a coffee? Yeah, sure. But then if there's a um, tone one in sympathetic tone, you want to grab a coffee? Hey, dude, I'm, did I ask you for coffee? Did, did I? <laughs> right. So it's, it's a little, um, it, it's, it's a very caustic. But then if that adrenaline is not flushed out of your system and it's a bit more, it's staying there a little longer, now you go to level two tone. And level two tone is now, it's, it's not a caustic response. It's a depressive response. Right. Now the system collapses. Hey, hey, brother, can you, you want to go ahead and have coffee? And all of a sudden you're going to go, well, who needs coffee anyway? What does that do? Right? So you, and now it triggers all of these other things. The last one is um, the, uh, almost like the catatonic, the catatonia, where, hey, do you want to get a coffee? What? I, I was just talking to you. Did, did you hear me? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So now the person is non-responsive. So the first two views it as a threat. The third one, and you, you hear this a lot in the news stories, right? When the guy all of a sudden decides to just, you know, kill everybody at the McDonald's. Right. Right? Oh, but he seems so nice. You know, he was, he just minded his own business. Yeah. Because he was already in that catatonic phase. Right. He was so high up in that sympathetic tone. So whenever, going back to my original point, whenever we are viewing a threat and going back to what you said about kids, sometimes if you're in high sympathetic tone, I don't have kids, I have two cats. And sometimes if I'm in the middle of a long kettlebell set, I look at my cats like, you bet, don't even think about touching me, right? Don't you even think about it. Then 10 minutes later, I'm recovered. Oh, my baby, you know, so good. Yeah but it's because you're in that kind of threat re reactivity, so to speak. Uh, so yeah, check in on your biochemistry. Before yeah. You I mean, it, I love everything you said, cause that's, that's how I counsel. We, I do um, a lot of vagal tone counseling and, and really looking at polyvagal theory, which is a huge uh, thing in mental health that I really connect to because it's so, it's so true. And, and just the breath and how the breath sinks, right? Like that exhale is so, important for that calmness and that that parasympathetic response and then that that heightened breathing that inhale is always tied to the sympathetic nervous system yeah that's why you see people go deadlift and they they're like monsters because of the, that intense breath and they're like slapping themselves to to meet that challenge that that um enemy right is lifting that that weight it makes sense but you, I don't think I've ever seen someone calmly go like long exhales and like, Oh, I'm going to lift this, this huge yeah. amount of, <laughs> of weight. Let me just chill out before I do it. Yeah. Um, and we, we see it all the time, but we don't reverse engineer it and, and think about how, Oh, if I can access that when I'm feeling reactive, I can actually calm my response and look at it objectively and say, Oh, I don't need to freak out about this. I can take that step back. And you know, I, I, um, you know, the, I remember when I was talking to um, Tom Myers about it, he said, yeah, people who live in the inhale who have to project that kind of strength, there are times when you have to do that. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, re very recently, 1,100-pound, uh, I think it was 1,132-pound deadlift. Crazy. You know, the guy can't go in and go, hey, everybody, you know, flow with the go, everything's good. If he goes in with that attitude, he might end up wrecking his entire body, right? Right, yeah. So there are times. And usually it's a very short moment of time when this exertion has to fire and the biochemistry has to be just right. The problem is when we forget the off switch. Exactly. And now, and now we have the same biochemistry for an 1100 pound deadlift as when we see a social media post. Oh, you, you want to take that laptop and that phone. You want to, you want to throw your, your, your phone and it's going to go through like half a mile because you're, you got fired up on the wrong thing. And that's one right. thing um, I learned in, uh, it was my, again, uh, um, my dad, you know, he, he's, uh, it's like a, my, my teacher, my mentor, like my brother, that kind of guy. <laughs> when I was much younger, he said to me, my son, there are two mistakes, two mistakes, grave mistakes that you should never commit as a martial artist. And I said, All right, what's that dad? Number one, you end up, killing a man you did not intend to kill.
meaning you're too you're too wired yeah. up and you you meant to just do something but now all of a sudden guys dad you're going to jail right. and I said, yeah you're right dad so don't misuse your skill because before you know it you're hurting someone you didn't intend but um you said there were two mistakes so what's the second mistake you said very seriously the second mistake is to not kill someone you did not you intended to kill right <laughs> Uh, it's 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 such a funny and simple way of saying it, but that's that's what it is. That's it. Like an did you, yeah. Did you time it? Was it the right response for the right time? There's a thousand techniques. Um, Muninori said uh, Yagyu Muninori, who was the um, sensei to the shogun back in the 1600s, said it very well. There's a thousand techniques, but you will only win with one. You only win with one. So it has to be timed. Right. There's nothing wrong with living on the exhale inhale. If you're deadlifting 1100 pounds. Yeah, sure. That's fine. That's great. Right. Nothing wrong with being living on the exhale. If you're chilling at home, I'm with my friend, Steve, we're chilling out. We're have it's, it's all good. It's when you get the two mixed up. Exactly. So if I'm all depressive going for that 1100 deadlift, I'll blow myself out. But then if I live on the inhale and I'm talking to you and I go, Hey Steve, what, what do you mean wrestling and, Reverse leverages. Are you saying jiu-jitsu? No, no, it's no, You got to time your time your yeah. biochemistry. That's like the takeaway. <laughs> it's almost like a, a saying that I play around with in session a lot. I ask people, "Are you anxious at the right time?" Yeah, you know, because these emotions, there's value. Them, they're they're messages, right? But are we honoring them and, and kind of using them for what they're telling us, or are we just reacting to? Oh no, I don't want to feel anxious, so I'm running away from it. Or yeah. I'm fighting against it. And so it's true. It's, it's like you have to look at the timing of these things and where you have, um, where you honor them. And I think that's fantastic. All yeah. right, so we're not going to get to the Jeet Kune Do. Um, maybe we'll have another session all about that because I, I do want to pick your brain on that. Um, but I end every podcast with two questions. Yep. And so I'm going to ask you, and you can answer in any order you want to, but my two questions are, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Mm. And then the second one is, what do you believe your superpower is? Your gift, your quality? Um, you know, it's uh, the thing about superpower, the concept of a superpower is somehow what I have now is not enough. And, the pro and I think the reason why we don't have these superpowers is because um, we have not tamed uh, the beast within us. Yeah. I think whatever creator said, you know, and I'm not going to, teach him how to fly. I'm not going to give him like a laser beam or even invisibility because this individual might do something. But uh, the first, the first one I think of is actually, um, I think it's invisibility, the ability to retreat to the ability to not be seen um, to be able to exist in a world simply as an observer and just say, and not be a part of it. Right. Uh, so that would be the first one. So it would be in the power of invisibility. It's for, so somehow you're in a bad situation and all of a sudden you know, you're getting an annual review or I'm giving an annual review. <laughs> Things aren't going well. Oh, where did and then go? Go, wow, he go? He was just here. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, I'm, maybe I'm disconnected. I'm going to go home and rest. Yeah, that's right. Oh, <laughs> so, so there's that. Um, and what is, what is my superpower now? I would, I would say my, my superpower is, um, is the ability it's called, I like to call it boundless optimism. I, no matter how bad a situation is, somehow I have this strange ability to go, no, 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 there, there's a way out of this. BJ Penn said it very well. He was in a fight with Matt Hughes. And I think Matt Hughes got him in a crucifix mm -hmm. and started elbowing him. And they did an interview with BJ Penn after. And he said, you know, a warrior never thinks he's going to lose. And then they, they did a slow-mo of when he's getting elbowed, you know. And he said, even here, I thought I could get out. <laughs> right. Even in this exact moment, I thought I could get out. And objectively, you're looking at it objectively. And you're going, nah, dude, you're done. It's, it's Matt Hughes. He put right. you in the crucifix. The two, the two of them together, man, like those were awesome matches to watch. I oh, really, yeah. I yeah, was a huge it. Matt Hughes fan. And BJ. Oh, yeah, yeah. I really like him as well. He was, um, he was the guy, one of the guys who actually inspired me to go up to the 170-pound uh, weight class. So I was like, look at this guy. This guy is awesome. 
yeah, yeah Matt Hughes, uh, tremendous. But it would be my superpowers, um, boundless optimism. No matter how bad a situation is, uh, there's a sense of hope that there's a way around it. Uh, I, I would, I would love to at some point, you know, still talk Jeet Kune Do because you and I, I could go on about that, of course. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. maybe we could do it off the air or even have another episode. Um, and I, so here's, you're bringing up all these quotes I like to use. Um, and, and I have a list of quotes cause I'm, I'm working on this book. Um, I don't think I've ever announced that, but one of the quotes I like to use that I came up with is, you know, if we were, if superpowers were a real thing in our society, hardly anyone would know about the fact that they have a superpower because they're so disconnected to their body and the regulation of their body, right? And so yeah. to your point, maybe we do have superpowers and we just don't know because we're not as connected and synced into ourselves because we're all outside focused. Yeah. You know, in, in video games, you, you have to beat the first boss first, right? <laughs> yeah. And then you unlock like a superpower, right? And then you, you level up, you do all of these things. And I think that's how life, whatever created us, kind of, well, if Orlando did this, he beats this boss, he levels up. And then if he beats this boss, it levels up. But in the game of life, it's not a boss, it's you. You're the, you're the level one boss you got to beat and you got to unlock uh, those other superpowers that you always had, but you had to unlock it. Right. That's a good way to finish, man. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm honored to have you on the podcast and just loved everything we talked about. <laughs> so this, was, this was a fun one for me. So. Same here. Same here. I had a lot of fun. And um, I hope you know, I hope to do this again with you soon. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please outreach to us at info at the Promethean Project dot org. If you want to learn more about the Promethean Project or if you would like to donate to our cause, you can reach us at thepermetheanproject.org. If you really do enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends. Please like our posts on social media, on Instagram and on Facebook. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app that you like to listen to. Again, thank you for taking a listen. And remember that the most important step is always the next one.